Today on Blue 58, the Packers got a win in San Francisco for what feels like the first time in forever. And despite the state of the 49ers, I feel like there were some things we actually did learn. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink. Very happy to be with you here to celebrate a Packers win. And the Packers did get a win today. Sure, it was in unusual circumstances. Sure, maybe this game shouldn't have been played at all, but they did get a win. And they've got six wins on the season. Six and two is not bad through eight games so far. But what a game this was. Are we going to remember it six months from now? Is it going to be like the Miami Dolphins game from 2018 for me, where I have to look up the box score to convince myself that it actually happened, and I'm still not entirely sure? Maybe. Kind of has a game that uh, has the feel of a game that's going to just fade to distant memory by this time next week. But the Packers did still get a win. What an unusual game, though was quite a journey to get here. For a while, I was fairly convinced they weren't going to play this game, but here we are, having just watched the Packers come out on top 34-17. to In the first half, the 49ers are driving down the field. Nick Mullins uh, hits a skinny little wide receiver on an out route in the left side of the end zone, and Joe Buck says, and there's River Craycraft making the catch, or something to that effect. I found myself actually saying out loud in our living room, if you say so, Joe, i got to take your word for it on this. Who is River Craycraft? I don't know. But that's kind of how this game went on both sides for both teams. And as good a win as this was, and as solid as the 49ers' defense has been throughout the season dealing with their, their injuries that they have, I'm not going to bother saying it throughout the show, but some caveats apply to this game. The 49ers were not all there. They only had to make like four players inactive for this game because they are that banged up. But a win is a win, and taking care of business against teams that you are supposed to beat is a good quality for your team to have. And it's certainly something the Packers did not do last week. So there's plenty to celebrate in this game. Let's dive right in with our three good things from this game. First and foremost, the Packers took care of business on offense. They came out rolling, went down the field, scored a touchdown. Right away, that's good. But then bogged down a little bit. They had a couple tough drives. They couldn't really get going. Had to punt. But then drives four and five, their last two real drives of the first half, they really put the game away. Two solid long drives that put the Packers up 21 to 3 and really at that point as much as as the game might have been functionally competitive it was really from a practical standpoint over the Packers go 9 plays and 38 yards after the Mullins interception and score. And then they get the ball back on their own 13-yard line, march 87 yards in eight plays, and go up again. That time on a 52-yard touchdown to Marquez Valdez-Scantling. At that point, again, the game is over. What else do you really want there? Aaron Rodgers was efficient. Nobody can guard Devontae Adams. 
Marquez Valdez Scantling did some nice things, at least two of them. And Tyler Irvin showed that he can be an actual running back in a pinch. Tripled his career high, at least with the Packers, total in touches. Had four carries, or four four catches, excuse me, and eight carries. Twelve total touches. Had never had more than four in a game prior to this with the Packers. I don't know what else you want there. On defense, we saw the Packers come as close as I think they have in probably two years to just beating up on somebody. Other than Richie James, the Packers really pushed the 49ers more or less all over the field. Jarek McKinnon had 52 yards on 12 carries. It's a 4.3 yards per carry average, but only a long of 11. Nick Mullins did throw for 291 yards, but it took him 35 attempts to get there, and he only completed 22 of those 35 attempts. It's bad that the Packers gave up a bunch of big chunk plays, but in the grand scheme of things, it's almost like no harm, no foul, because they really weren't doing a lot of harm. And finally, if this is a preseason type game, let's, let's treat it like that. Let's just talk about a few of these guys that got to play tonight. Dexter Williams, for starters, was, I think, going to probably play more of the Tyler Irvin role down the stretch in this one. Unfortunately, he got hurt in the first half, but he looked pretty good on a couple of his carries. He at least ran hard, and he showed that he is another bigger-bodied running back who can get downhill now and then. That's never a bad thing to have. Wish he would have stuck around a little bit more. Darnell Savage feels to be grouping feels weird to be grouping him in with the preseason type guys here in year number two, but still uh, seemed more active than usual tonight. It wasn't outstanding. He did drop an interception, but he had a nice open field tackle in the first half. And showing energy and being around the ball is more than what we've seen from Darnell Savage really to this point this season. It's not too bad. It was nice to see Kadar Holman out there for the Packers. He is somebody I've been asking to to see out there more, just because, again, I'm kind of a little bit over the Josh Jackson experiment at this point. But with Jackson playing better this year, uh, Holman's opportunities have been few and far between. But at least he was out there, and at least he didn't make any super terrible crushing errors. He did have a a play where he was part of a trio of defensive backs that kind of got worked over, but I don't know whose fault that was, and we haven't seen the full tape on it yet, so we'll withhold judgment there, but it was nice to at least see him out there. Speaking of guys, it was nice to see out there. Stanford Samuels got to play, did two bad things at least. He was part of that trio of defensive backs that got turned around pretty badly, one of them at least might have been his fault, and that was the, that was the one where, where they gave up the big score, where he, Kadar Holman, and Henry Black all kind of got worked. Those things happen when Stanford Samuels, Kadar Holman, and Henry Black are all in the field together. It's kind of what you're going to get. But the personal foul penalty was not his fault. 
And how ridiculous is it that he's probably going to pick up a fine for that too? A helmet-to-helmet hit against a quarterback is just something that a defensive player is never going to get away with. But in this situation, Mullins ducked right into Samuel's hit, and that is very annoying. On the offensive side, we should talk about a couple guys here too. First, Elton Jenkins, the left tackle. He had the weird illegal formation penalty, which sounds a little bit just like a guy who plays guard, typically lining up a tackle on short notice. But hey, look, it's another thing that Elton Jenkins can do. And he might just be the second best lineman the Packers have right now. I mean, Corey Lindsley's having a great season. But other than David Bakhtiari, Jenkins is the dude. He can do everything you need from him on the offensive lineman or on the offensive line. He could start probably at any position if they needed him. If Corey Lindsley was really going to be out, they would probably dump Lucas Patrick in there. But if it was a long-term sort of issue, Jenkins might be the better option. Now, he's probably more valuable at guard, but that just speaks to the talent that he is. He can do everything and move all over the field. That's a pretty awesome thing to have. But also pretty cool is John Runyon stepping in and really not missing a beat on the left side of the line. John Runyon right now might be the Packers' best 2020 pick, and that's really not so much a shot at the other draft picks as much as evidence of how good he has been. Whenever the Packers have needed him, and I think they've needed him more than they would have preferred to, he's stepped in and been real solid. And for a day three pick, playing on the offensive line, that's pretty darn good. I feel pretty good about that. Shout out to another John out there. This game was not without some bad things, but given that it was a 34-17 win, it does feel a little bit like nitpicking. And I think this was a pretty solid effort top to bottom. There was some bad, though, and a lot of that comes in the form of injuries. So Dexter Williams gets hurt, and as a result, the Packers have to play a lot more Aaron Jones than I think they would have liked to. That may not have been the worst thing in the world, given that they wouldn't have played him if he wasn't 100% anyway, but I think they would have preferred to avoid that. Rick Wagner getting hurt, I think, is is the one to watch longer term other than Jair Alexander, but that would, as we saw tonight, require some reshuffling on the offensive line if David Bakhtiari is not ready to go as of next week. Chris Barnes got hurt, which is frustrating again because just I guess we are cursed to never have any stability in the middle of the Packers' defense, but at least they have options there. With Kamal Martin hopefully returning from uh, the COVID-19 reserve list here in the near future. And then, of course, Jair Alexander with the uh, the concussion evaluation. Not ideal, obviously. But if you're going to have a bunch of injuries, this feels like the game. First and foremost, all the problems that San Francisco is dealing with. But second of all, you've got a week and a half to get everybody back. And it looks like, if I had to guess, most of these guys will either be back or not needed uh, by the time they have to play the Jaguars. The other bad thing I wanted to talk about was um, the career game sort of aspect of this one. Now, I just wrote for Acme Packing Company about players who have had career games facing the Packers, and 
not two days after I wrote it, it's already out of date because there is another player who had a career best game against the Packers. Richie James has nine catches for 184 yards and four and a touchdown. Not that it really mattered. It's more the principle of the thing. A lot of the games where the Packers end up winning where they have given up big performances to opposing players. Ultimately, that's a bit of a footnote. Like you give up a big game, but you, you come out on top shirt. But it's still frustrating to see one guy beat you again and again and again. Small thing, but still an irritating thing. Ultimately, though, the Packers get the win. They are 6-2, and two, and for once, extending their lead in the NFC North. Chicago, even with a win this weekend, will be no better than 6-3, and three, and the Packers have a chance to put some real distance between themselves and the rest of the NFC North. They've got a week and a half now to get healthy and get ready for Jacksonville. And that's about all I think you can hope for at week eight, week nine, wherever the Packers are near the middle of their schedule. Six and two, have a longer rest here to get healthy and then play a team that is currently one and six. That is the team that is up next for the Packers because the Packers get to take on the currently one win Jacksonville Jaguars. It's a noon kick at Lambeau Field on November 15th. And I think there's a good chance the Packers are going to be fairly heavily favored in this one again. Packers, of course, play nobody this weekend because they just beat the 49ers tonight. If it feels like there maybe isn't a defining theme to this show, I think that is probably accurate. Because if what I said near the start is true, that this felt a lot like a preseason game, what really is the defining trait of a preseason game? You get a look at some guys, and hopefully you get your good players out without getting hurt. Well, by and large, the Packers did get out without too many major injuries. We'll learn more about Jair Alexander's situation here in the near future. But beyond that, they did pretty well. Aaron Jones didn't get hurt. Aaron Rodgers didn't get hurt. Devontae Adams didn't get hurt. None of the big names on defense got hurt. That's good. We got some extended reps for some guys we don't normally see a lot of, and that's good as well. From there, I think you just take your W and move on. So let's talk about some of the random stuff that popped up in this game and then get you off into your Friday. First and foremost, the running back situation led to some weird stuff, and almost all of it had to do with John Lovett. He was all over the place, and it was hilarious to watch. He showed up split out in the slot on the first drive, which is not a place that he ever belongs, uh, then you had fullback Lovett throughout, which is where he should be. And then at the end of the game, you have running back John Lovett, which is something that's hopefully entertaining for him, but something I don't think we want to see for any extended amount of time anytime soon. On defense, I was very happy to see the Packers pass rush making things difficult for the 49ers. If there was one way Kyle Shanahan and the 49ers were going to get into this game, it would be by dicing up the Packers because they couldn't get home on the pass rush, which would have let Shanahan and company do whatever creative, weird, interesting things that they wanted to do on offense and move the ball. But the Packers managed to get after Mullins. They hit him five times, they sacked him once, and it felt way more than that. They were getting pressure, though, even without getting hits, and that matters a lot. 
they were getting so much pressure that Troy Aikman actually said on the broadcast that he thought that the left tackle, Mr. School there for 49ers, had given up three sacks. He immediately corrected himself and said, that's obviously not true. I'd look at the stat sheet and say that he's only given up one, but it did feel that way. And I think that shows how much it can affect the game. Uh, related to Mr. Aikman there, we've kind of gone away from announcer talk on the podcast. The podcast said that kind of funny podcast. Sounded like Scott Walker. He says his O is kind of funny. Listen to that if you're in Wisconsin the next time Scott Walker talks. Um, anyway, that's an old radio news thing that we talked about in the newsroom. He has he had a very unusual brand of Wisconsin accent. That's neither here nor there. Anyway, here on this podcast, we used to talk a lot about the announcers that the Packers got each and every week. And we've kind of gotten away from that for a variety of reasons. But uh, I wanted to point out tonight that I actually thought Buck and Aikman did a really good job. First, they made a prediction up top that I thought was, well, they, they had an observation up top that I thought was really, really good. They said, the pressure is all on the Packers in this game. And it was. Uh, the 49ers were beat to heck. And the pressure was for the Packers to come out and take care of business and do their best to beat this team that they should absolutely beat. And they did. Then they brought that up later in the game. And I think it was actually Aikman that said that. Uh, maybe it was Buck. It's not really important who, though. They brought it up later in the game and said, we were wrong. Uh, the 49ers did not move the ball here, and the Packers took care of business. It clearly showed that they could answer the pressure, and I think that's pretty commendable. Um, but once this game started to get out of hand, Buck and Aikman did a good job, I thought, of pointing out interesting things that were happening during the game, interesting things that would come up, and just kind of not letting the game get away from them. Because it wasn't a game after midway through the second quarter. But Buck and Aikman were both engaged, active. Not that they weren't taking it seriously, but they kind of were watching it the same way I think a lot of people on both sides were, both Packers fans and 49ers fans. By the you know first or second drive after halftime, you know that nothing is going to happen. There's not going to be a miraculous comeback. So you're only watching if you unless if you're doing something like this or if you just want to watch the game for kicks, you know that the outcome isn't in doubt. And Buck and Aikman knew that too, but they still did a good job of staying present with the game, I guess is how I would put it. I thought that was pretty good. A cool aspect of having no fans at games continues to be that you get to hear more and more of the line calls and things like that. And we got a new one tonight, or one that I hadn't heard from Rogers. I, I want to say before, we may have heard it heard it before, but it, it's at the very least been a long time. Uh, Packers are driving their fourth drive. This one ultimately ends up in a touchdown, uh, but it's third and five. Uh, Aaron Rodgers makes a late audible at the line and starts yelling turbo. I think it was turbo. Uh, and then basically it's the, the clock is ticking down, the play clock clicking, clicking down from two to one to nothing. And you see he yells turbo, turbo set. And... I thought this was the case at the time, but I believe that turbo meant that basically the next sound that you hear from me snap the ball, Corey Lindsley. And that's in fact what happened. Apparently, this is pretty common in the Sean McVay branch of the Kyle Shanahan, Mike Shanahan offense basically means that the next sound is go. That's how Jared Goff uses it in LA. Uh, that's how I've seen it used other places before. 
And the Packers here got the snap off, got a defensive pass interference, and Mercedes Lewis scores on the next play. But I just thought that was a nifty little call from from Rodgers. Uh, just a, another example of him being sort of professorial at the line, just in control of the game, uh, getting what he wants, and, and he had a great game tonight. Uh, that play, that Mercedes Lewis play, is notable because he is the second player in Packers history to score two or more touchdowns in a season at age 36 or older. I don't know if that play was a, an example of the Packers trying to scheme him open just so he can get involved in the game, because that's kind of how it was last year when he scored his touchdown against the uh, the New York Giants. Uh, but it was a beautifully designed play, and he continues, even at age 36, to be a useful player in the Packers' offense. Speaking of useful players, Marquez Valdez-Scantling was fairly useful. Kind of had a weird game. Four targets, two catches, two touchdowns. Not really quite sure what to make of it. I need to reflect on it a little bit more. Statistically, it's it's pretty good. Two touchdowns is always going to be good, more or less. More importantly, though, he did well at the things that he does well. Got the big 52-yard touchdown essentially by running fast in a straight line. That is a useful skill. DK Metcalf is making a heck of a career out of being able to run fast in a straight line and be enormous. But still, MVS dropped the easy one. That is less good. But on the other hand, he did work open on a little bit of a scramble drill at the back of the end zone. That is some advanced wide receiver play. That is good. He also had an interesting sort of block. You remember the the Jake Kumaro play? We talked about it a lot last year. Where a receiver, and I call it the Kumaro play because he, he seemed to be the one that ran it the most. But a receiver would start out, um, split out wide, motion into like a little wing or H-back type position, square to the line, both feet square to the line, usually hands on his knees like a like an H-back or almost like a, a blocking back or a, a just any kind of back in a two-point stance, and then stick his nose in and, and get his get a block near the line of scrimmage. And MVS ran that today, or a variation of it. And that was interesting to see because usually it's the bigger, heavier receivers that do stuff like that, Alan Lazard, even Malik Taylor. Um, so it was, it was interesting to see uh, Lafleur use him in interesting ways. He even got to be the, the jet guy uh, a few times, um, instead of Tyler Irvin tonight. And I thought that was interesting too, because that's another interesting way to use uh, Valdez Scantling's skills. Or maybe you should just say his skill. The one thing that he does really well is run fast. And why not just put him in more positions to use those sort of gifts? Finally, wanted to close with a question. And Troy Aikman brought this up, and initially I think I agreed with him, but I'm not sure now. Did Aaron Jones play too much? Thinking about it, I'm not so sure he actually did. If Dexter Williams was healthy, then I would say giving him 18 touches would be too much. But he wasn't. So the Packers needed to have more than one back out there, especially if they wanted to have Tyler Irvin do any kind of jet motion type stuff. On top of that, some backs feel like they need a little bit of seasoning after they've been back from injury. I'm not sure this is supported by data or whatever, or this is more just to feel things, but some guys like to get hit a little bit. They like to feel like they're involved in the game. 
And Jones has been on the shelf for long enough that he might have just felt like he needed to be kind of hit a couple times, just roughed up a little bit. Now he gets some time off, can can recover close to 100% or however close you can get to 100% heading into week 10 of an NFL season and get ready for the stretch run. And the Packers, I think, have uh, more importantly than in this game, in the season overall, and the injury helps this a little bit, but just been able to manage his touches so far. Coming into this game, he only had 93 touches on the season so far this year. And again, it does help that he was out for a couple games, but the Packers have done a good job of not overworking him. Coming into this game, Jamal Williams had 91 touches. And I don't think that that split is going to end up being close as the season goes on. But for right now, they have been pretty close. And I think that's noteworthy because of what it means as far as Jones' availability down the stretch here. And that's when things are really going to matter. You'd much rather have him for the the divisional games near the end of the season when when you're going for playoff seating and things like that than these middle-of-the-season games that ultimately don't matter a whole lot. So far, the Packers have done a good job of maximizing him for that time. So I've got for you on this episode. Thank you so much for listening in. I appreciate you uh, taking the time to check out the show. If you enjoyed it, if you think there's uh, somebody else who would enjoy it, go ahead and share that with them and uh, help us bring more people into the Blue 58 family because ultimately that's going to be what helps us continue to grow this conversation we're having around the Packers and ultimately help more people become smarter Packers fans. Because as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We will see you next time on Blue 58.